Well, I'm Dave Selvig, and our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews. Please follow along in your Bible, or you can use the screen. So I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39 from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The word of the Lord. morning. I want to begin this morning with a Money Matters moment for our church. Money Matters is when we take occasional uh, 
when we take an occasional moment to uh, FYI uh, all of us on some ways that our money is being spent. And this week, I want to highlight the work of Nicholas Fund for Education in uh, our Agros village in, the, uh, in Guatemala. Uh, this past Monday, we opened a brand new junior and high school called Nicholas Christian School. And uh, this first year, uh, we're going to have over 60 students as the first full-day school in the region. So this is a pretty big deal. It's a really cool work that we get to uh, partake in. And uh, beyond the learning opportunity that this school represents, the larger hope is that for the next generation and the generations that follow, we would be a significant part in breaking the cycle of poverty uh, that pervades uh, that area. Uh, the pictures, uh, the picture behind me shows the new school logo in the center. And then we see Petronia, our first college graduate through Nicholas Fund for Education, who has now been hired as our, one of our first teachers. And uh, on the other side of her, we see Professor Barulio, and he is our first principal. Really cool work, guys. Uh, a special mention and thanks to Bill Safestrom, uh, whose work and leadership have brought us to this point. And uh, Kathy Riper, of course, and Al Lopez, they'll be leading teams in February and July, respectively. And if you're interested, uh, just fill out your communication card, connection card, and let us know that you're interested and somebody will reach out to you. As I thought about this, the most exciting thing to me so far uh, is seeing the evolution and growth of a mission and an organization that we started with one small idea and it began to evolve and grow as we began to engage the needs that were changing in the area. So has our ministry and our mission. So it's really fun to see that aspect. And, uh, and if you see Al um, Lopez anywhere, uh, I don't think he's here today, but he's in San Francisco. But uh, give him a pat on the back because he doesn't uh, ever want me to mention it, but uh, he really is sort of the founder of this thing, and uh, he deserves that. So uh, be sure to appreciate him for that, and thanks to many of you at our church because the majority of the funds for this project came from our church. So uh, thanks for all your good work. Okay, you ready for the sermon? All right. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here at the church, and we are in the final stretch of our series in the book of Hebrews that we have called Witness in Christ, in Culture, and I have been asking us to bear witness to different aspects of the Christian faith as a way to bring an honest testimony to our culture. Not one that we just inherited, not one that's been pushed on us, but one that we have experienced and owned and can represent with a certain uh, feeling of authority because we actually bear witness to it. And today, I want to invite us to bear witness to what I'm calling a clear conscience, that we have a conscience, that we have this inner reality whether we acknowledge it as there or not, whether we've been neglecting it, whether we've been pushing it aside, it is there. The passage today calls it confidence, calls it conscience, calls it faith. 
and finally calls it the soul. And, uh, you know, as Christians, we believe that uh, this conscience is a direct reflection of the image of God himself, that God has standards and he has ways that reflect his nature. And he made us to reflect this nature. And the inner way that he speaks to us is through our conscience. It's one of the ways that he speaks to us. Now, setting that aside, if you're here, you don't believe the Bible, you don't believe in God's law or standards, but you uh, are just a secular person and you're here because you're curious, I would ask you, do you have a conscience? Do you have an inner voice on the inside? Some standard by which you live. Have you ever said to somebody, you should? Have you ever said to yourself, I wish I hadn't? What are you talking about? You are basing those thoughts, those feelings come from somewhere. Where does it come from? I would tell you that I think that's your conscience. Uh, Last week's sermon, I would say, was uh, weighty and complex and meaty. And there was uh, profound implications for our church and how it defines our next season. So I would ask all of you, if you haven't heard the sermon, to please check out that sermon. If you don't know how to find our sermons, our website is a good place to start. If you get the loop every week, the loop has multiple ways to access sermons uh, from our church dating four years back. And so uh, you can do an iTunes subscription, podcasting, RSS feed. You can go direct to SoundCloud. You can do all sorts of things. There's no shortage of ways to access that, but please do that. I was counting, and I preached since I've been here, total about 160 sermons since I've been here, um, about 40 of those elsewhere, but majority of them here, and I've only got, been able to get myself to listen to about 10 of them. It's really painful for me to listen to my own sermons, but I'm going to listen to last week's sermon tonight. I've set aside time for that. I want to invite you to do the same. This week's sermon, today's sermon, I would say, uh, is a simpler concept. And we're going to sort of beat the same drum over and over again in different ways. The real uh, payout for this sermon is in the application. If you will go and do something with what you uh, hear today, it's going to bear fruit in your life. Almost instantly, you're going to feel relief and freedom and lightness that's going to uh, give you a good day. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, I uh, want to warm us up to this idea of the conscience uh, through a man named Oswald Chambers. He's sort of an oldie but a goodie. And he has a profound and uh, concise way that he uh, sort of approaches topics, and he does a marvelous job with the idea of conscience. Let me read it for us. Conscience is that ability within me that attaches itself to the highest standard I know, and then continually reminds me of what that standard demands that I do. It is the eye of the soul which looks out either toward God or towards what we regard as the highest standard. This explains why conscience is different in different people. If I am in the habit of continually holding God's standard in front of me, my conscience will always direct me to God's perfect law and indicate what I should do. The question is, will I obey? 
I have to make an effort to keep my conscience so sensitive that I can live without any offense toward anyone. I should be living in such perfect harmony with God's Son that the spirit of my mind is being renewed through every circumstance of life and that I may be able to quickly prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, Romans and Ephesians. God always instructs us down to the last detail. Is my ear sensitive enough to hear even the softest whisper of the Spirit so that I know what I should do? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians. He does not speak with a voice like thunder. His voice is so gentle that it is easy for us to ignore. And the only thing that keeps our conscience sensitive to him is the habit of being open to God on the inside. When you begin to debate, stop immediately. Don't ask, why can't I do this? You are on the wrong track. There is no debating possible once your conscience speaks. Whatever it is, drop it and see that you keep your inner vision clear. It is not what a man does that is of final importance, but what he is in what he does. The atmosphere produced by a man, much more than his activities, has the lasting influence. We're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking what Oswald Chambers says here, but really he's summarizing the passage that we're going to study today. Another way to talk about the conscience is that it's related to our consciousness, our level of awareness, our softness, our sensitivity and receptivity to the inner person, to truth, to love, to reality. I see my own conscience and the level of consciousness, and I can see that it travels. It doesn't stay the same, but it travels, it grows, or it shrinks, it hardens, or it becomes soft and supple, receptive. It's almost like it's its own creature, and it needs to be nurtured and cared for and be paid attention to. The message of the passage that we're studying today is that we have such a thing as a conscience. And I want to ask you to bear witness to that. Do you have a conscience? If you're not a Christian and you don't believe in God or the Bible, you still can answer this question. Do you bear witness to the fact that you have some standard inside of you? Some ought to, some should, some ideal. Where does that come from? The scriptures teach that it's the image of God imprinted onto us. Because we are created beings. We have a creator. And he has a nature. And he's imprinted us with his nature. But if you're not a Christian, you still have this thing that we call the conscience. Do you not? Have you ever said to somebody, you should, then you have a conscience. And what the scriptures teach is that out of this conscience, we live and move and have our being. That it is a significant part of the facts in any case. 
and it's difficult to address legally or technically, but as intangible or as ethereal as the conscience is, it is the very thing that God cares about more than even our actions and words because it frames and defines our actions and our words. As Oswald Chamber puts it, we have an atmosphere that we create, and it's of final importance because man looks at the outward appearance of things, but God looks at the heart. It's not just what you do or what you say, but it's why, your motives. Is it coming from a place of love and care and good intentions? Or is it coming from a place where you're setting a trap or using somebody or trying to get control over somebody? Is it your insecurity? Is it your need to justify yourself? Or is it a place of lifting somebody up or injecting courage into somebody's spirit? Why are you saying? Why are you doing or not doing? See, we have this life that we have all on the inside. And it's very much real. I have one point for us today, and that is the essential conscience. And we'll follow it up with application and finally the conclusion. The essential conscience. Now, uh, the book of Hebrews has this word conscience more than any other book in the Bible. It's a big theme. It's mentioned several times in previous chapters, but here the author really dives into this theme of our conscience or the inner person. And uh, I don't want to reread for us. It's a long passage, but I want to highlight some words that share this theme, and it will give you a uh, sure picture of what this passage and the teaching is about. We'll start with verse 19. This word, confidence. Confidence is sort of a function of your conscience. Let me ask you a question. If your conscience is stricken, does your confidence go up or down? It goes down. When you feel like you have a clear conscience and you've given it your best shot, you've done what you know to do. Does your confidence go up or does it go down? It goes up. So confidence has a directly proportional relationship to your conscience. It does. Verse 22, a sincere heart, full assurance, and now here the word conscience. If in your heart you are being sincere, Sincere meaning the things you know to do, you have done. You have examined your motives. And you have a sincerity now with which you are speaking words. Your disposition, your heart's attitude is sincere. It's full assurance. That means because it's because your conscience is clear. Do you bear witness that this is true? That if you've done what you know to do, then your conscience is clear and you have greater confidence and a, sincere, and a sincerity about you? Yes? That's true. <clears throat> Verse 23, 
without wavering. When you have a conscience on the other hand that's been stricken and you feel guilt or some sense of shame or regret, do you waver more or do you waver less? Of course you do. That's our conscience speaking to us. And you begin to see how this inner life impacts our outer life. Do you bear witness to that? Yes. Verse 26, sinning willfully. It is possible for us to experience some version of truth inside of us. There is some voice that's speaking to us. There is some standard that we know we should live up to or strive for. There are some things we know we shouldn't do, but we do, or some things we should do that we don't do. That's willful sinning. Is it possible to deny that inner voice? Yes, it is. You don't have to believe in God. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to trust the Bible to know this is true. It's possible to go against your inner voice and standard. Some truth that you are called to live by from the inside. The standing question is, where does that come from? Verse 27, a terrifying expectation of judgment. Now, if you sin willfully, if there is a violation of your conscience, a deliberate violation of conscience, then what do you experience on a psychological, emotional level? You have what the scriptures call a terrifying expectation of judgment. In other words, your conscience creates in you a kind of subjectivity that causes you to operate out of fear and paranoia. The scriptures talk about the evil man whose conscience is stricken, and you know what he's always doing? He's always looking over his left shoulder, looking over his right shoulder, and his legs are always moving. He's running even though nobody is pursuing. It's such a vivid image for me. Can you imagine... You're just reactive, just a thin veil of normalcy. But underneath, you're a fearful, paranoid creature, always worried for your life. It's like you're living, you're living in the jungle somewhere, and there's predators out to get you all the time. Why? Because your conscience is stricken. Is this true? Do you bear witness to this? Yes. Verse 35, here's that great word again confidence. On the other hand, if you listen to your conscience, if you maintain attentiveness to it and you honor it, then you have what the scriptures call confidence. It's the opposite of a terrifying expectation of judgment. Verse 36 is a phrase, will of God. Now, this phrase, will of God, has been uh, well abused by Christians. It's been used by people actually to not accomplish God's will, but accomplish their own will. And it's uh, lost um, its sort of uh, uh, power in our culture. So many people under the name of God do horrible things. But the fact remains that God has a will. You know, it's not just some generic uh, disembodied 
sense of what is right and wrong, but it's actually a person of the highest level of conscious and consciousness, aware of every single atom and molecule and subatomic particle, aware of all of the laws of physics, because it itself is a reflection of his order and nature. And God has a will, a standard by which he calls us to live because he made us in his image. And we are living in his world. You can only ignore gravity for so long before it kills you. It's real. It's true. doesn't matter if you acknowledge it or respect it. There it is acting on you. So is the will of God. It's always acting on you, exerting pressure from the inside, reminding you what is true and right and good and beautiful and loving alternatively accusing or defending you, as Romans says. And as we grow in maturity, our appreciation for what God's will is and how we interpret it becomes more nuanced and complex and uh, intricate, and uh, um, our ability to handle the will of God grows over time. But even when we're immature, and even when our world is more just black and white and simple and do's and don'ts, there still is such a thing as the will of God. And God has created us in such a way that this will is expressed on the inside. And even if you are young and you're, you, you don't have life experience, or even if you're old, you have a God who is speaking to you. I'm not inviting you to be haphazard about it. I'm not inviting you to wield it like a sword at will to cut out whatever life you want. But there is such a thing. And then uh, verse 38, by faith. Now, this idea of by faith, the way the author uses it in this chapter is when your conscience is stricken, you don't have the faith to act. And so alternatively, you start shrinking back. And then your soul, which is vibrant and alive, like a creature that's been abused, begins to shrink away. It starts cowering away into the darkness as it were. Do you bear witness that this is true, that this happens? That you can either be confident or you can be shrinking away? That's faith. You have faith to approach a certain situation or a relationship or a decision because you have a clear conscience. And if you don't, you don't know how to even think about it because there's a subjectivity that's been marred by a terrifying expectation of judgment. And then verse 39, exact phrases, shrink back, have faith, and so reiterate it underscored for us. And the first thing I want to point out is that we live in both an outer and inner world. Yes, our lives consist of an outer world. There are our actions, our words, our relationships. There's our work and our play. We have this outer life, and that's what everybody has access to. That's what's visible and readily available for us to see and judge. But really, on a whole other, actually more important, fundamental level, 
We have an inner life, an inner world, an inner self. And really, it's hard to know what's happening on the inner world of the other person. But you know it. You know what your motives are. You know what your intentions are. You know what insecurities and what anxieties are driving you. You know what's holding you back and what's propelling you forward. You know this because you have privy to your own heart. Yes, is this true? Do you bear witness to this, that you have an inner life? And it says, actually, that this inner self, this inner world that you have, is not something that's contained airtight inside of you. As Oswald Chambers puts it, the conscience creates an atmosphere around you. That there's something intangible but very real that other people experience apart from your outer self. That you can do something, but if in your heart you don't have love, they don't experience it as love. Now, there's a great parenting lesson here for those of you who are parents. You know, one of the things that are heralded in our culture is it's not... um, just instructing your children, but it's modeling for them. And we can take it one step further and say modeling doesn't work either if your atmosphere isn't consistent with your actions. That we are all experiencing not just the acts and the words, what Oswald Chambers calls activities, but the atmosphere precedes and actually frames and defines your actions. Do as I say, not as I do. But it's not even as I do, but it's as I am, as what's emanating from within. Your inner world actually is quite pervasive, and it precedes you. When people think about you or they think about interacting with you, they already have a feeling about you. They already feel a sense of moving away from you, or moving towards you? Do you bear witness to this? Sincerity, confidence, paranoia. And because our uh, conscience defines our outer actions, it's so important for us to focus, maintain an eye on our inner self. Because that's really what you're presenting to the world. Another truth I want to point out is that there is such a thing as willfulness, such a thing as hardening your heart, that when you have a voice, but you don't listen to it, it begins to become quiet. It stops being receptive to truth. The, you know, when Jesus walked this earth, he was just, he put this in such a, um, Uh, concise but helpful way. He says this. He says, men love the darkness because their deeds were evil. You got to really appreciate the ordering of this because I would think men love darkness. That's why their deeds were evil. But he says, no, no, no. When you do something evil, when you violate your conscience, then you have a need for darkness. 
because when I wrong you, but I'm not willing to acknowledge that I did something wrong, then I have a need to demonize you so that I feel better about the violation of my conscience. I have to harden my heart against you. I have to see you and your so-called sin as worse than the sin I just committed against you. It's a really funny thing how sensitive the conscience is. For example, I uh, uh, made the main dish for dinner last night. And if you know the Sung family, this is a rare occasion. Let me just say, this is the first time I've made dinner for my family since I've been in Seattle. It's true. It's dinner. I've made breakfast plenty of times, okay? But you know what making dinner did for me? It made me look around and wonder what other people are doing for me. Like, who's setting the table? So I made myself also do the dishes. It was Emmy's turn, but I was like, Emmy, I'm going to do it for you. Because my conscience was like, you don't need to do the dishes. Why would you do the dishes? You did the most important thing. You're amazing. Amazing people don't do dishes. That's for the servant class people. That's the human conscience. I do one little right thing, and all I want is all the spotlights to be shining on it. I want the whole world to gaze at it and meditate on it. I do one wrong thing in the opposite, turn all the spotlights away and shine it on everybody else because it's all their fault. I have a need to expose your sin to cover up mine. Do you bear witness to this? This is also true. Darkening leads to love of darkness. You know, I hear people say, well, it's okay, I can do that. Even though my conscience is stricken initially, I'm kind of used to it now, and it's not hurting anyone. Oh, but it is. It is, because if you violate your conscience, you have a need to hate other people. You do. You have to rationalize and justify your violation. Every time you violate your conscience, you will love darkness more. You will shrink back. Uh, Some other verses. Verse 24 uh, has one another. Verse 25 has assembling together and one another. This word, one another, is one uh, Greek word, and it's the word that really means mutuality, our connectedness, dependence on each other. And what the scriptures are teaching about this is that if you claim to love God, It's not possible for you to hate another person. If you claim to love people, somewhere in there is God's love because you don't have love on your own. It all comes from God. He is love. He is the source of your love. We're all connected in this way. We have one relational reservoir inside from which we draw to relate to God and to man. And so your conscience is not just a vertical situation, but it's horizontal as well. It impacts your entire network. It impacts your entire world. Do not for a second think your conscience is a private matter. 
I wish that were true. I wish I can just sort of just be okay all on my own. And I can be uh, fine with whatever my heart is because I just have to deal with it. No, everybody else has to deal with it also. Maybe you don't want that burden, but that's the reality. The nature of your presence, your atmosphere, precedes you in all of your relationships. Uh, Another interesting word is found in verse 31. And uh, the author makes sort of just a parenthetical mention of this. I don't want to talk about it too much. But he says this, that your experience of suffering with a clear conscience is vastly different than suffering with a marked conscience. What was happening to his audience was they were experiencing what's called persecution. Christians were being killed. They were being stripped of their property. They were experiencing separation, disintegration of their family. And yet, in the midst of it all, they were able to despise their suffering because of the reward that they were looking forward to. When your conscience is stricken, how do you experience pain or discomfort or some situation that happens? The first thing you do is you start going, oh my God, I swear, God, I'll never do that again. what's What's going on? What did you do? You know what you did. That's your conscience speaking. And the way you experience that misfortune or unfortunate event or suffering or pain or happenstance in your life is vastly different than when your conscience is clear. People start repenting of all their sins when life puts a little squeeze on them. They start making promises. It's called bargaining. Do you bear witness that that's true? Expectation of judgment or expectation of reward. That's the difference in your suffering. Um, I want to share now a couple of passages from other books in the Bible. Now, if you did a word or theme search for the word conscience in the Bible, you're going to come up with literally hundreds and hundreds of verses. The scripture cares a lot about the condition of our inner life, our inner self. So there's going to be no shortage, but I want to share a couple of verses with you that uh, are balancing truths and help us to round out how we are to think about the conscience. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 to 5 says this. This is Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian church who are very critical of him. He says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, you got to appreciate how uh, Paul is an equal opportunity insulter. He holds no man in regard. He says, I don't care what you think. Who are you to me? And then right after that, he says, I don't even care what I think. I only care what God thinks because he's the only one who has access to my heart, my motives, my inner world. And my conscience is bearing witness to his judgments 
And he's going to bring a certain kind of light that will expose all of the darkness and the motives of my heart. And at that time, when God does that, then we will all know. But until that time, right now, I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. Because we have such a thing as the conscience, and God will judge it. What do you think? You know what other people do. You know what other people say. But you don't know what's really going on inside of them. But God does. And in the end, his eyes are the only eyes that matter. A lot of times we don't know what's happening because the heart, above all other traits about it, the number one trait about the heart, it is that it is great at self-deception. It is so good at not knowing what's really happening. It's not very self-aware. But God is very aware, and he is going to bring all things into the light. So there's a balancing truth about the human conscience that ultimately we are all waiting on God. And then Romans chapter 2, verse 15, uh, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. And what this passage is teaching is that the human conscience is a bit relative. It's sort of a relative needle, but the needle is still an effective guide for such a time as now. Right now, no matter what condition you're in, you have some ability to start uh, repenting of your sins, things that you are violating your conscience about. Even if it's hard, there's still one thing that is stricken about, and you can start there. Until God comes and exposes everything for what they are, you have a relative starting point. Uh, now, the application. Uh, the first one is I want to encourage you to be attentive to your inner life. I know that uh, we can sort of um, ignore it. It's sort of like the equivalent of this. The example I thought of is sort of the Facebook life that we put up for all the world to see. You know, you look at your friends and you think, every single friend I know on Facebook is living a better life than me. Because all you see about their life are the highlights. No matter how nasty that meal was, they're still smiling with it and taking a picture of the plate of food in front of them. You don't actually know how it tasted. Maybe it was awful. Maybe the bill was really high. Maybe the company was bad. Maybe it was a creature comfort they're providing for themselves because they've had an awful day. You don't know what's happening. You don't know the backstory at all. All you see is the picture of them skiing or eating a meal or hanging out with a friend. There's another glorious sunset. All their kids are perfect and growing up. That's what it can be like if you don't pay attention to your soul. You can sort of judge yourself by certain acts and you can feel good about yourself, but really you're rotting away on the inside. Everybody else can be patting you on the back, assuming you're fine, but you're not. I am not shocked anymore by the people who come to me, email me, call me, and say, Peter, I need some kind of help because my life is falling apart. I'm never shocked anymore because I've just learned over the years, you never know what's really happening. 
Be attentive to your feelings and your inner voice. Okay, second application point is the impact of the conscience in relationships. You have to appreciate how secrets affect your relationships. For example, you know, we all have need for privacy. We all have secrets. Secrets are okay as a category, but secrets that's violating your conscience are not okay. You're allowed to have a private life, and we don't want you to live it publicly. Put that away. That's for you and you only. But you're not allowed to have secrets that violate your conscience because that causes you to act differently. Your atmosphere changes when you have a secret of that nature. It causes you to isolate yourself or create distance in relationships. It changes what you emphasize, the kind of conversations you have with other people. It makes you subjective. It makes you speak out of a place of loving darkness rather than light. You come with you. Uh, you, come, you bring with yourself an atmosphere of anxiety, and then you have an increased need to triangle other people. And what that means is you have a need to make things about other people because you don't want to face the stuff that's really about you. Here's Peter. Here's his secret or issue. I don't want to deal with it. It's too binary. So then I create a third relationship, and now I can just focus on how awful that person is. We do that all day. Uh, the third application point is attentiveness to your inner voice in the midst of suffering. When something bad happens or you're surprised with some sort of misfortune that day, and uh, I would say pay attention to the reaction you have to that because you can be anticipating a reward or you can suddenly feel a fear of punishment. And it's informing you about the state of your conscience. So it's helpful. And then finally, I want to invite you to consider the insincerity of your doubts, that not all doubts are sincere. You know, we think doubts are intellectual and logical, and that's all. But it's not true. Your heart informs your mind. And so you may have a stricken conscience, but you want to protect a certain lifestyle. You want to protect certain habits. Therefore, you have to hate the light. You have to love darkness. You fear exposure and loss of control or the voice of authority in your life. Therefore, you have to have doubts. You have to say, there is no such thing as moral standards. Morality is so old. It's about what makes you feel good. As long as I'm not hurting anybody else, who cares? Why do you care? It's just me and my life. And the scriptures know, is that true? Is that the whole story? I think your jig is up. The whole story is, if you live your life the way you just want to live it, you're violating your conscience all over the place. And I think we've already established that you, even you, have standards. And if you are violating your conscience, you have a need to justify that lifestyle. You will love darkness because your deeds are evil. You don't want light or authority or exposure. And it affects your thinking. It affects your worldview. It affects your very intellectual philosophy of how life works and who you are. It does. And I want to invite you to be honest about that. (coughs) 
I want to conclude here with this, uh, these verses from the passage that Dave read for us, but I took out some phrases to help create a more um, streamlined and better flow to the passage, um, and then we'll conclude. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There is no amount of good deeds you can do to make up for the stricken conscience you have within. Water can wash your outside clean, but to have your insides cleansed and made new and white like snow, nothing but the blood of Jesus can do that. That's the Christian message, that we have a conscience, and only Jesus' blood can make it clean. It is not by the works of our hands or the intentions of our hearts that we find redemption for ourselves, but it is through the blood shed on the cross. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we have weight in our hearts, things weighing us down. And I pray that this week, this moment, you'd give us the courage to lift them up before you. And find you faithful. Find you willing and wanting and waiting to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.